Let me invite you to stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 1 through 5. So if you hit the Psalms, keep going to the right, and you'll eventually hit Isaiah. He's located there at the beginning of the prophets. And I have a good word for you, a hopeful word for you this morning in a dark and dismal time. So Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray together. O Lord, how we ask as we come to your word that you would help us to humbly sit under it and receive the teaching that you have for us today. Through your Spirit's power, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I'm going to begin today by violating uh, what I'm about to talk about, and I'm going to start the way you don't start a sermon, which is to be negative. To be negative. And the reason I'm doing that is because for the most part, Christians are negative about the future. We are negative about the future. In fact, Gallup, you know, these people who come up with these polls, uh, they have a Gallup Global Emotions Report that they publish every year. Aren't you glad you came to church today and you're learning about this? The Gallup Global Emotions Report came out and this is what they said in the introduction of this report. As you'll read in this report, negative emotions, which they define, I'm quoting from the report, as the aggregate of the stress, sadness, anger, worry, and physical pain that people feel every day. So negative emotions reached a new record in the history of Gallup's tracking. So new record. You don't have to conduct a poll I could have told you that. You could have said that. And they wax eloquently about the state of the world and everything that is going wrong. And I want to contradict all of that today. Surely we live in a fallen world. Yes, bad things are happening. Yes, we are sinned against. But this is what I'm offering you today, that Christians should not have a negative view of the future. That if God is sovereign and he's in control, 
our negative view of the future is really something we manufacture. I want to offer you this. Your negative view of the future, my negative view of the future, is actually the result of being influenced by the world because God is not negative about the future. God is not negative about the future. I'm going to demonstrate that to you. I know you're skeptical. You're sitting there. You're skeptical. So let's look at God's Word and see what the case is here. Now, I am not talking about positive thinking. I'm not talking about optimism. I am talking about a hopeful outlook that is biblically informed because of what Christ has done, is doing, and will do. There's a difference there. I'm talking about, when I talk about we should be hopeful for the future, I'm talking about a biblically informed, this is realistic, a biblically informed view of the future because of what Christ has done, is doing, and will do in the future. So I don't want you just to feel hopeful uh, this morning, although I think that would be great. I want you to know and experience the hope we have in Christ as the answer to all negativity, all the bad news. Is there a lot of bad news out there? I haven't watched the news in a while. Is there any bad news out there? In response to everything bad in this fallen, sinful world, the answer to the bad news is the good news. And the good news is here. Somebody's calling about that good news. Even now, the answer to the bad news is the good news of the gospel. It's right here in this passage. So you're asking, why? Why should Christians be positive about the future? Are you not in touch with reality? Why should Christians be positive about the future? I'm going to give you three reasons. The first one, it's here in the first couple verses. We have a mountain of hope. We have a mountain of hope. You notice here in verse 1 of Isaiah 2 that there's some kind of transition, a summary verse here. We read the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. After this pronouncement of grief and lament over the future of Jerusalem, which is in verses 21 through 31, into that context comes this hopeful word. Look at verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established, as the highest of the mountains. Now, first, we got to answer this question, well, when are those latter days? When are those latter days? And sometimes I get the question, people will say, Pastor, are we in the last days? Absolutely, we're in the last days. So was the Apostle Paul. You see, there are only two time periods that the Bible knows. Before the Messiah, after the Messiah. Before Christ and after Christ. When Christ came, he ushered in what we would understand as the last days. The time between his two advents. The time between his coming to die on the cross and raise again and the time he would come back as a king. If you need a chapter and verse, we've got Acts uh, 2.17 
and we have Hebrews 1-2. Both of those verses refer to the current time then as the last days. And so certainly we are in those last days. And then what's going to happen? The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. What's going on here? Well, the prophet is using some imagery here. Mountains, the mountaintops, those were significant places in the ancient days and significant places of worship as well. Somehow they understood in their ancient minds that to be on top of a mountain is to be closer to God, to uh, be halfway between the heavens and the earth. You might remember reading about different Israelite kings in the Old Testament, and what would they do? They would tear down the high places, these places on top of mountains where uh, idols were erected and Asherah poles for uh, cultic worship. And so you need to know that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. It is a competition. It's a competition between God, who is the only true and living God, and every other false God. And guess, who, guess who's going to have the highest of mountains? The true and the living God as described in the Scripture to us. And look at this in verse 2. It shall be lifted up above the hills. So what I'm getting at here is this is a triumphant and victorious picture of the domination of God's kingdom, of his mountain. His kingdom is his rule and his reign. And what we're told right here in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, that God's going to win. You don't have to go to Revelation to find that out. It's right here. It's right here. The highest of mountains lifted up above the hills. And what's going to happen? Look at the end of verse 2. All the nations shall flow to it. What a picture of nations, those who are outside of the Jewish nation, God's chosen people, becoming part of that chosen nation through God's work, through the Messiah's work, the nations flowing to it. So this large, imposing mountain becomes dominant, victorious, and overrules all other kingdoms, all other gods. This is the triumph of evangelism and discipleship. So my question to you, giving you this is where we're headed. If you're a Christian, if you place your faith in Christ, if you understand that Christianity is not about doing better or trying harder, but it's about the fact that Jesus did what we never could on the cross, and he has atoned for our sins through his death and risen again in victory. When we look at that empty tomb, we see this mountain that is the highest of mountains. There is no way to stop it. It's going to happen. It is a certainty and now you understand why I say God is not pessimistic about the future. Why would God be negative about the future if his mountain is going to be established as the highest of mountains above all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it? Is a mountain of hope 
enough for you. Oh, well, you don't understand. I was reading the paper today and it was rehearsing some neg. I'm asking you again. Is the mountain of God big enough for you to have hope that he will win, that he will triumph, and that to be a Christian is to submit and repent of our pessimism about the future. You know what the national pastime is, right? It's not baseball. Uh, that was replaced by football, and football was replaced by sitting around with our friends and family and complaining about the state of things. That's the national pastime. And uh, I, I, I admit I'm very good at this, by the way. I have the spiritual gift of sitting around telling you what's wrong with the world and how to fix it. Oh, if they would only listen to me, right? And, and certainly you say that to you. We sit around and we wax eloquent. Let me tell you what's wrong with the world. And we do this. We engage in this. And the, part of the reason we do that is we feel that the world is out of control. And so this is how we make sense of a world that is out of control. But actually, how you make better sense of it is you say, I don't understand what's wrong with this world, but I know a mountain is coming. I know God's kingdom is coming. You see, a mountain of hope is enough for us. God is not pessimistic about the future. Think about it for a moment in Matthew 16, 18 and addressing Peter, the confessing Peter, what does God say about his church? He says, I will build my church. He promises, I will build my church. And is CNN and the liberal media, are they going to triumph against the church? Are some rules and laws or the Supreme Court, are they going to triumph? No. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Is a mountain of hope enough for you? What about Jesus? In John 16, he makes a promise. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Is a mountain of hope enough for you? What about when Paul writes in Romans 8, 31, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Is a mountain of hope enough for you. You see, you and I, we drink from the sewage of our media, and we think somehow we let it influence us. We are liturgically formed by the bad news we submit to every day. Instead of looking at 1 John 4, 4, where John writes, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world is a mountain of hope enough for you. What about in Revelation 21.4? We'll go all the way to the end where every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more sickness or death. Is a mountain of hope, I ask, enough for you? Certainly, God is not pessimistic about the future. Why are we? Why do we sit around and discuss with our friends uh, what's wrong with the world? Well, we don't trust God. That in point of fact, he is orchestrating the events of this world exactly as he has planned to bring about his glorious result. We also sit around and talk about what's wrong with the world because it makes us feel good. We're prideful people. 
And we think, oh, if I can say what's wrong with the world, then somehow maybe I can make it better. But what I'm getting at here is we need to repent of our armchair quarterbacking or armchair politicking, sitting around thinking we're solving the world's problems. And what we need to do instead is do something. Trust God. Trust His positive view of the future. And instead of being agitated, angry, and frustrated, use that energy to serve at your church, to volunteer, to give, to do something for God's coming kingdom rather than just complain. And so I encourage you, we have a mountain of hope. Look at that mountain. If you have been drinking deeply from the wells of our current world, I, I mean, I will tell you straight up, if a person does not trust in Jesus Christ, how do they have any kind of perspective over the current events of our world? And why do we listen so closely and intently? If God holds the future, and he does, we have a reason to smile at that future and to know it belongs to him. The mountain of hope that we have as Christians, that's the first reason we can be hopeful about the future. Second reason here that we can be hopeful about the future is this wonderful invitation that we have. Look at this wonderful invitation. Look in verse 3. Many peoples shall come and say. So the many peoples there, those are the outsiders. Those are the ones from the nations who have gone up. What do they say? Come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. There's this wonderful invitation that shows that by the power of God, we can change and we can take him up on his invitation. There's another invitation we looked at earlier in our series on Isaiah, and this is in chapter 1, verse 18. Look across the page there to chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. God himself inviting us to reason together. And then look what happens here in chapter 2, verse 3. Other people are inviting different ones to come up to this mountain, to the house of the God of Jacob. And with what motivation do they go and what do they hope to achieve there? Look at the end of verse 3, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. There is a humility there, a willingness to change, a willingness to be taught, and an openness to change. Those who grow the most in their Christian life are most open to the work of the Holy Spirit and changing and willing to be taught. I like to think of myself, I try to be a lifelong learner. What do I have to learn in this situation? That's descriptive here of God's people. They're coming, and they're saying, Lord, teach us your ways. And it's not just so they can grow intellectually in their knowledge. Look at that next phrase there in verse 3. It's that they can apply it, that we may walk in his paths. All Christian learning should have application to it, that we would give glory to God in the transformed and changed life that we live. 
as he sanctifies us and works to make our character more and more like the Savior's, so that he may teach us his ways, we may walk in his paths. And then look at this at the end of verse 3. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Many people would look at that verse as some kind of physical restoration of the kingdom of Israel or the restoration of Jerusalem. But instead, you need to see that the way Isaiah intends it. Who brought forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem except our Savior, Jesus Christ? Now, the go forth the law, you need to understand that the Hebrew term law is Torah. And what that means is it's the way. It's not just the do's and don'ts. It's the way to live life the best in a way that pleases God and honors Him. So out of Zion, out of Jerusalem shall go forth this way of living. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, what else except Jesus' life, his example to us, it fulfills this prophetic phrase here. And the word of the, the Lord from Jerusalem, as Jesus says, he's the way, the truth, and the life. He is uh, the fulfillment of this passage. Well, what's it mean to us? What's it mean to us? What better way to go to church than to have this attitude? What better way to sit under Christian teaching than to have this attitude? Can you imagine if we came to church this morning and, we, and our prayer is, Lord, teach me that I may walk in your path. Not so I can get smarter and argue better uh, with folks that I'm complaining about the state of the world with, no, teach me your ways that I might be eager to walk in your paths. You know, so often, and I mean, this is just a, uh, I, I, I know we live the good life here in Bernie, but a, a little bit of a knock against our, our culture. We are so evaluative, judgmental, and critical of, of everything, aren't we? And our success... And our wealth teaches us to behave that way. But that is the devil's way of coming to church. The Christian way, Lord, teach me your paths that I may walk. Teach me your ways that I may walk in your paths. There is a humility necessary to grow with Christ. And this is the attitude we ought to come to church with. This is the attitude we ought to learn and read the scripture with in our daily devotions that we together would be changed and transformed, not seeing, judging, you know, my main job is to be critical of everything around me. What good does that do? That hasn't worked yet. Go ahead and give that up. And instead, humble yourself before God and say, teach me, Lord, at this stage in my life, whatever that is, teach me that I may walk in your past. Teach me how I need to change, what kind of conversation I need to have, maybe a relational fence that I need to mend. Teach me that I may walk in your past, 
Notice here this great contrast, and it's another reason why we can hope. Look at there at the end of verse 3, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You can't forget the context. Look at verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. That is quite a pronouncement, isn't it? Well, God is talking about the same thing here. He's condemning a city that was formerly faithful. And what we see is a vision of hope that God will redeem yet again. God will redeem again. So there's reason to hope. There's reasons to be positive about the future, to be informed biblically about the great things that God is doing to cease our vain activity. I'm talking to myself here, and maybe you. Cease our vain activity of gathering with friends and rehearsing everything that is wrong with this world and rehearsing how we have been mistreated, and instead coming to God and saying, may we walk in your paths, teach us your ways. And we will walk in your path. So, so far, we're two reasons down. Why we should be biblically hopeful about the future. The first one was the mountain of hope, God's coming kingdom, which is a foregone conclusion that is unstoppable. No government can stop it. No worldly power can stop his coming kingdom. And then this beautiful invitation. It's an invitation to change. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. And the last reason here we can have hope is in verses 4 and 5, and it is this tremendous peace, this tremendous vision of peace uh, that we have. God's judgment is depicted here in verse 4. Notice this, verse 4, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And the idea here is, is that God's judgment is infinitely wise and better than our judgment. And he is able to decide these disputes and judge between nations in a perfectly informed way. And as such, you don't need to. You and I can give up that national pastime because God's going to do the judging. He's going to do the judging, and we can set aside our worry and anxiety because his judgment is a lot better than our judgment. And his judgment is so total. And remember, the primary problem that we have, the fundamental problem that we have is that we are sinners alienated from God. God is holy. We are not. So what did God do? He judged and he sent Christ for us, and the judgment due to us for sin fell on Christ. God has perfectly judged, and he had to do this to reconcile sinners to himself. And so as such, he has brought peace. He has brought peace. And the peace is so total. Look at the depiction here in verse 4. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, the instruments of warfare 
are no longer necessary or needed. There is no need for people to defend themselves. Think about it for a moment. You know, I know who I'm talking to here. You've got that AR-15 or prized deer rifle. You know, you got that, you know, when it's going down, you're grabbing that one. I know who I'm talking to. And you've got all these special accessories that you put on that. And uh, can you imagine sticking it in a pipe bender and just, because you don't need it anymore. And you destroy that weapon. Because instead, you don't need a destructive weapon. You need something that can bring in the harvest. The harvest is so abundant because of what God has done. He has ushered in an age of peace through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. And we no longer need the instruments of warfare. And it goes further than that. Look at verse 4. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. And in our current time, do we not have an example of that, of Russia invading Ukraine and all the devastation uh, that has happened there? A nation aggressively invading another nation to the detriment of the people? And the peace shall be so total, look at this at the end of verse 4, Neither shall they learn war anymore. You don't even, not only do you not need the weapons of warfare anymore, you've got to fashion those into instruments of harvest because the times are so good and the harvest is so plentiful. And then you don't even need to learn the strategy and tactics of warfare. I know some of you have served in the armed forces, and what are you doing? In part, you're constantly learning. They have another manual or another training or that, that's coming. Can you imagine all that learning goes away? Why? Because his kingdom has come. And it is broken into our world to bring us this incredible peace, a peace that Paul would write that surpasses all understanding. That in the midst of all the chaos of this world, we can have peace because we know Christ has given us. He has reconciled us to God and given us that which we most need. Look at verse 5. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. You get another invitation there, like in verse 3, like in chapter 1, verse 18. With our greatest issue taken care of, our alienation with God because He's holy and we're sinners, and having repented and trusted in Christ, we can walk in the ways of repentance and know peace, even in a chaotic world, because God has given us hope. And so the next time you're sitting around with your friends and maybe you have this spiritual gift of complaining or criticalness or, like me, solving the world's problems, why don't you bring up, you know, there's a kingdom coming. And while it looks chaotic out there, and there are things happening in this world which we deeply mourn and lament over and disagree over, God is still in charge. He's still Lord. What if he is just toying with his enemies? 
to make his triumph all that much more dramatic. Read Psalm 2 and you'll see that the Lord laughs at the derision of the nations. And so we can be confident. We can be hopeful. We have a mountain of hope. We have an open invitation to come to the Savior. And we have this incredible peace. And that is why I will always be hopeful about the future. Not because of what's happening in this world now, but because of what God has promised to do. Let's pray together. Lord, as we think about all that's going on in the world, we pray that you would help us to see with the eyes of faith, to acknowledge that, yes, there are things that are deeply wrong in this world, and we may have been deeply sinned against, but that doesn't change the reality that you are still Lord, and that you are coming again to establish your kingdom. And may we as your people cast aside our pessimism. May we as your people cast aside our negativity and embrace the hope that you have for us here in Isaiah 2. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.